Hi, this is Mandy Griffin. And I'm Katie Swalwell. And welcome to Our Dirty Laundry. Stories of white ladies making a mess of things. And how we need to clean up our act. everybody. Just a quick note before we start our episode this week. We are discussing sexual violence, sexual assault, and rape as it pertains to the practice of slavery. We know this is a sensitive issue in general and may have particularly difficult um, content for some of our listeners. So if you are particularly sensitive to this, you may want to refrain from listening. Um, And in any case, Please take care of yourselves um, listening to this episode today. Thanks. Hey, everybody. Hi. Happy Friday. Happy Friday. Yay. It's not Friday for me, though. We, days of the week mean absolutely nothing <laughs> to my schedule. Zero. <laughs> well, first, let's just say hello. I'm Katie. This is Mandy. And Hi. we. this is not our job. This is our hobby. We are yeah. not experts. I feel like we should tell people like, we love history. I was a history teacher. I am currently an education professor in social studies education. So it's not like we're bumps on the log. I mean, that's yeah. not true, but we're, we are not professional historians. We are just devouring every piece of historical research we can find about the history of white women's complicity in white supremacy. And yes. you are like a medical savior working <laughs> so hard day and night in the ER. I mean, we, because of HIPAA, I, I know you can't like publicly share some stories, but holy moly, you, the stories that you have from the ER are wild. I feel like you could start another podcast just like Tales from the ER. There's probably someone who's doing that. I mean, there are lots of, there are lots of ER podcasts, unfortunately, like you said, because of HIPAA, it's hard to talk about like patient experiences because you can't identify anything. And all of the best stories like have to have something unique about them that someone would be able to identify something with. So yeah, (laughs) I I think about that. Like like, people ask me a lot, like, Oh my gosh, tell me your craziest stories. And it's like, no, no, I I wouldn't tell you my craziest stories, even if, you know, I could, because people don't need to know a lot of this stuff. <laughs> just how to you don't. I mean, I do pe- people that. always think of like the funny things and like the crazy things or whatever, which are, there are those and, you know, those are fun to tell, but there's a lot of not fun stories to tell. Like the kinds of things that everyone's mind just doesn't need to be inundated yeah. and cluttered with, but Hey, that's what we talk about here too. The stuff <laughs> people don't, don't want to think about, but we need to. So, so please keep are. listening to just horrors. <laughs> and actually that is an amazing segue to what we're going to talk about today because full trigger warning. And we'll have one. If you've been listening, you will have already heard it like a trigger warning at the beginning. Um, today we're going to talk about sex and sexual assault and rape. And so this is one of those things that like the stories that I'm sure haunt you from your time in the ER, that it's like you see this side of humanity that is so heartbreaking and dark and awful. Like you, you don't even want to like give it life beyond that one moment, Mm -hmm. but there, but this is such a huge, massive 
common dimension of slavery that there's no way we could talk about slavery this season and white women's complicity in it if we did not also talk about this dimension because it's incredibly important. So I totally understand if people can't listen to this for various reasons, you know, their own experiences, or they're just not in the right headspace to, to listen to it. But, um, that, yeah, that we felt like we couldn't not talk about this. Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately, one of those things. Yeah. Yeah. Well, anyway, I started off with happy Friday and we ended up in like a really... As we do. Uh, here we are dark again. place. I know. Here we are again in a pit of despair. Um, well, I I want us to start off. Um, gosh, there's just a lot of places that I think this conversation is going to go. Before we start with this, though, can we say happy news for everyone? Yeah. Which is that we got to talk to Stephanie Jones Rogers, author mm-hmm. of They Were Her Property and just all around incredible historian. That was like one of the highlights of my year. I don't know how you feel about that. Well, yeah. So if you can't listen to today, understandable, totally, but you're going to want to come back next week when we put that episode up because it's so great. I said to you, Katie, after we got off um, from talking with her again, every, every time we talk to somebody, I'm always just equally and more so amazed at the end of it, that it goes as well as it does. (laughs) (laughs) You're a really good interviewer. I, I always think that I like talk too much and I ask really muddled questions, which is like ridiculous because part of my job is to do qualitative research. So I should be way better at it. You are insightful and incisive and ask great questions. And I, I'm always grateful that, that you're part of the conversation with these amazing guests. Well, I feel the same way in the reverse, but I, (laughs) yeah, I mean, she's great. She's, I'm so amazing that she would talk to us even. That's one thing I I always say. Why do all these people talk to us? (laughs) (laughs) So nice of them to do. And then they seem to like it. I don't know. I mean, of course we like it, but I'm always shocked (laughs) that they seem to like it. I mean, I I will say like, I'm sure it feels good to know that your work is reaching people who aren't fellow experts, Mm -hmm. you know, but like everyday people just live in their lives trying to be better in our case, trying to be white women who aren't shitty. Mm -hmm. And I would imagine that for a lot of the historians and activists and people that we've talked to, like that helps them feel good. I don't know. Cause sometimes this work is like, if you're, if you're Stephanie Jones Rogers and you're knee deep in archives and you're having to go through like really traumatic histories, you want to know that people are going to read your book and that it's going to be worth it. And you know, the legacies of these people are going to be carried forward, you know? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Well, I'm glad people are talking to us. Yeah, I know. It's so great. It's it really is like a just I thought <laughs> I was actually thinking yesterday after we got off that call, like as I hope this podcast goes on for a while because we have a lot to talk about. But oh, if yeah. it ended now, I would still <laughs> feel like so I would feel so awesome about the people that we've gotten talked to, the relationships we've already made, the stuff that we've already learned and all of that. So yeah, I hope it keeps going, but it's been 
so it's great. It's been great. So. Well, and to all of our listeners, just always thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Because truly, Mandy and I probably would do this if no one listened. We would still <laughs> record and pretend like we had listeners. But the fact that we have people listening and sharing it, just thank you so much for that. We we hope these histories just get learned by as many people as possible. So please share, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, please rate it because those in the algorithm, that's what helps put it in front of people when they're looking for new podcasts. So thank you for everybody who's doing that. And to, to show our gratitude, we're going to talk about really awful stuff today. Let's get into it. Let's do it. Okay. Um, here's a stat for you. I, yeah, historians estimate that at least two thirds of enslaved women were sexually assaulted. Mm, I'm sure. Sure. I mean, I, I wouldn't doubt if it were higher. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and that, you know, what, what gets included in that category of sexual assault is uh, like a wide variety and range of experiences. Um, so this is why we, we had to talk about this because you cannot tell me that white men, two thirds of enslaved women were sexually assaulted. That is by white men, obviously. Yeah. That there are all of these white men raping black women, and you cannot tell me that white ladies are just oblivious, cool to that, with that, or right, oblivious, yeah. don't know what's happening, don't yeah. have thoughts or feelings about that. Like, there's just no way. Right. Of course they knew and had some sort of complicity, even if it was just in acting like they didn't know. Still well, complicity. and I... What's interesting is like a lot of these histories, when we try to do our research, thanks Google Scholar. I feel like we should also be shouting them out in addition to all of the historians work. But when I'm always really frustrated by how little scholarship is out there about this, because Mm. I have learned bits and pieces over the years about like white women being vindictive to enslaved black women who they knew were having sex with their husbands or like had children by their husbands. Like, and we mentioned this a little bit in the breastfeeding episode that sometimes a black woman who was enslaved and a wet nurse would be nursing her own child Mm -hmm. who was born because of sexual assault from her master at the same time that that guy also had a child by his wife. And so there are these like just the complicated nature of all of this. Like I, I knew a little bit about, white women, you know, taking it out on enslaved black women, especially if they worked in, in the house. Mm -hmm. Um, and that sometimes there's this idea that like, Oh, if you were, if you worked in the house as an enslaved person, that was better or like more prestigious than working in the fields or whatever, like as if there's levels of prestige, but really for a lot of black women, that was not the case at all because then you were put into this very scary position. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. um, the likelihood of sexual assault goes up and then you have to deal with this white woman who, you know, has all sorts of tricks up her sleeve to be heinous to you. So I, I knew like bits and pieces and honestly, just like common sense would tell you that that's part of this happening. Um, yeah. but I wasn't really able to find a ton about it. I will keep looking and report back, but I was able to find this really fascinating article I want to focus on today um, by Rachel Feinstein, who's a lecturer at Cal State Fullerton in the Department of Sociology. And her research uses 
archival data that we're going to talk about, which I think is really interesting to study sexual violence during slavery. And she also applies an intersectional perspective, which is informed by the work of Kimberly Crenshaw and legal scholars um, who are part of the critical race theory tradition. And there's a whole lot in the news about critical race theory lately Mm -hmm. by a lot of people who have no idea what the fuck it is. And so we actually, another guest we have coming on that I'm losing my mind over as well is one of the nation's leading experts on critical race theory and education. And he's going to give us a crash course in CRT and why people on the right are like losing their minds over it and completely misunderstanding whether that misunderstanding is willful or not. Um, Probably our listeners, maybe they'd never heard of critical race theory before like the last month, but it's everywhere in the news right now. So Rachel Feinstein uses um, this kind of framing uh, that we will look at. And she also wrote a book that I was not able to read just for the sake of time, but we'll get to when rape was legal, the untold story of sexual violence during slavery. Mm. That title alone is just a lot. So you talk about this a lot, like white women's diaries, not a great place to look for information (laughs) because I didn't know this. Stephanie Jones Rogers told us this in her interview that they often dedicated their diaries to their kids. I mean, I guess that makes sense in a way because I think about when I was I've been taught to keep a journal over my life yeah I I think it's a Mormon thing honestly like a way of recording history for your like progeny I've never done it (laughs) well we've established you're not a very good Mormon (laughs) (laughs) yes we have (laughs) I mean I did I did actually try to do it for like a couple of years in this journal I found. Anyway, but part of the reason I don't do it is anytime I have and I've gone back like a few even a few years later and read stuff, I'm like, this is so stupid. It's I don't so, ever I want anybody to read any of this Same. and then I throw it away. So oh that my no God. one can ever find it. But I think that the whole idea of doing it was like <laughs> So that people, your, you know, progeny that comes after you can know about you and your life and whatever. So in a way, mm. I think a lot of people do write for their children. And it's sort of like built into the project itself that you yeah. are hoping someone reads it someday yeah. to learn about your life. To, yeah. To I, learn about you. But, but specifically, uh, as we know, to learn about the things that you want them to learn about. Yeah, Why obviously. is anyone ever going to tell on themselves and their own bullshit. Like it just doesn't happen very often because most of us just aren't that insightful to our own bullshit. So we couldn't even do it if we wanted to. Or are just ashamed or don't want that to be part of the record. You know, I, I have like in middle school, junior high, I kept a journal for a little while because, you know, I thought the books with the keys were cool, but (laughs) I, I mean, truly I would pay like a thousand dollars for those journals now. I mean, I definitely do them way. Oh, my daughter, Nell, um, she has journals, many of them. <laughs> They're the best because also I think she loves Wait, the keys. Wait, you have read it? I've, uh, snippets. I have not read. I don't even know where she hides all of these things, but occasionally <laughs> I'll find them out and like flip open. They are hysterical. She'd be furious if she knew that, knew that I saw oh, them at all. But like you she should scan them or something in case she's so funny. They're One of so my funny. great 
friends, dear, dear friends, shout out to Judy Prez, but she, um, is part of this group called Mortified. It's this show. <laughs> it's a live show, but now they have a podcast and they have a TV show. And the founder, I can't think of his name, but he had this idea that people go back and find their old journals from when they were like 12 or 13. Mm-hmm. And then they read them on stage and he mm-hmm. like themes shows around it. And so her, she sent me her first one that she did. And I truly in all of my life have never laughed that hard ever. It was the funniest thing. And it wasn't just because I know and love her and mm-hmm. just hearing her voice as like a 12 year old who's like threatening to cut people is like super funny. <laughs> um, but it, it, I mean, I was like weeping with laughter. It was amazing. So I strongly encourage people to check it out. Mortified. It's so, yeah. so good. And that, you know, when I think about my junior high diaries, I oh think I probably gosh. could perform them because they were about like a love triangle. I of course concocted in my head. It did not exist in real life. And you know, all all of the people involved and we will not name names, but I, I bet you can guess who these people oh, are. I could talk about them because I remember the notes that we passed in that <laughs> Oh my God. Don't you wish we kept those notes? Like oh what I wouldn't give, like the folded up yes. passing back and forth notes that were so graphic and ridiculous. And I got what I wouldn't give to have those notes back. Anyway, all of yes. this is to say like, Ha ha, our crushes in middle school. Like that's what diaries are good for. But I don't think, yeah, like we've made it historically not a good document (laughs) to rely upon. (laughs) Not great. Not great. Um, Okay. So back to this, this is um, sociologist woman, Rachel Feinstein, and I hope I'm saying her name right. So in the journal of historical sociology, there's this article that I just absolutely loved and appreciated. It's called intersectionality and the role of white women an analysis of divorce petitions from slavery. So guess where women are going to say some shit (laughs) in their divorce petition. Interesting. How many of those could there even be back in the time of slavery? That's not something I would have ever thought about. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think there are tons. She might've said a number and I just didn't write it down. Um, Mm -hmm. But it it like it it is kind of like an extreme measure to take, and so mm-hmm. one thing that she talks about is obviously the sexual violence documented in these petitions is just the tip of the iceberg because so many more women knew it was happening and didn't divorce their husbands because mm-hmm. of it. Mm-hmm. So we're seeing like the most extreme cases or the the most bold white women who were willing to throw down right. about this in illegal separation, divorce kind of way. Um, So here's what, what she says. Although legal documents from the perspective of those enslaved are largely unavailable about this particular issue, one form of legal documentation recording the widespread sexual violence perpetrated by white men against enslaved black women can be found in divorce petitions submitted by white women to the courts. This legal documentation offers a set of data from which to analyze the language used by white women in discourse on rape and sexual violence against enslaved black women. And she goes on to say that kind of what I just said, that the, this data significantly underestimates the actual number of white men who engaged in sexual violence and rape of enslaved black women, since many groups are not included in the sample. For instance, many white women did not divorce their husbands, regardless of sexual behavior with enslaved black women, reducing the representation of these petitions to a small segment of the white female slaveholding population. And of course, wouldn't document single white dudes because they don't have a white woman to divorce them over it, obviously. Even though like many white women, no doubt 
understood their sons to be or their, involved yeah, their in sons for sure. horrible things mm-hmm. or brothers or whoever. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, what's really fascinating to me is there's definitely more like airing of grievances in this, but what Rachel Feinstein does, I think is so like thoughtful and nuanced is even the way they still talk about it here is still fucked up. Like, and she teases apart how it's even in the way that they're framing it, they're still trying to position themselves in particular ways. So while it's more honest, maybe, or like clearly explicitly identifying these acts, it's still doing it in a way to protect the white women Mm -hmm. in their petitions for divorce. So I'll, I think this will make sense as we keep going. Um, And part of this is because the way that they frame it in the divorce petitions, take a wild guess. Like, do they say, I need to divorce my husband because he raped an enslaved black woman? I would guess not. No. Do you have a guess as to how they frame it? Maybe he was lured by that woman. Um, They went after him, but they can't take it or they couldn't stop themselves. I don't know. Some excuse for why it wasn't still just a violent act. No, no, exactly. Like it's a hundred percent framed as adultery. Mm. So the like, like, this is just a mistress that they have. Yes. It's a a relationship, a consensual mm -hmm. relationship. Right. Whether Mm -hmm. she lured him or he fell off, whatever, but in their minds, it is adultery Mm. versus right. You legally own this person so there's even under the best of circumstances, that is still a really deeply fucked up power differential. Yeah. And so, because there is evidence that some of these relationships were a lot more complex and there may have been like some more mutual affection or something else kind of going on. But if but that enslaved legal relationship still existed, yeah. then that's still like a really, really messed up relationship. And that most of it right. was not that way. Um, so here's Rachel Feinstein again, the force coercion and abuse that go into the sexual encounters between white men and enslaved black women, as well as the purchasing of slaves solely for sexual purposes, which we talked about in a previous episode, Mm -hmm. the cult so-called fancy trade could all be used to challenge the reputations of these white men. However, the absence of this discussion in the petitions evidence the way these sexual relationships were framed during this time period. White people did not regularly see sex between white men and enslaved black women as a problem of coercion or violence. The force and threats used by white men to engage in these sexual relationships was considered appropriate by the general white public since most whites believed in the legitimacy of white entitlement and property rights over humans as slaves. White men could use force and sexual abuse towards enslaved black women, and white women could read this behavior as, quote, adultery instead of sexual violence. Euphemisms such as adultery and illicit and adulterous intercourse can be interpreted as intersectional tactics used by white women and white men to achieve certain benefits at the expense of other groups. The euphemisms used for rape and sexual violence function to preserve an element of white virtue among white men and allow white women to be framed as the victims as opposed to the black women who were sexually violated mm-hmm. in the divorce petitions, white women are consistently framed as the victims of abuses carried out by white men, including of the sexual violation they execute against enslaved women. Black women are merely described as the tools of abuse used by the perpetrator, white men against white women. Mm. 
It's a twist for you. <laughs> but totally made, I mean, it makes sense. Yeah, I don't mean it makes sense. And like, you know, they really were onto something there. No, makes sense. Just, and of course that's the way they would do it. Of course that's yeah. how it happened. Mm-hmm. Like, not only is this enslaved black woman being sexually abused, but then she's not even, it's not even being documented or reported that way. It's like, she is just a tool of hurting white women. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Fuck this history. Mm-hmm. It's just mm-hmm. so frustrating. <sighs> okay. So mm-hmm. basically, and, and something that Rachel Feinstein points out that I I understand, I feel like because what we're, we're doing on this podcast, I'm just like loath to ever let white women off the hook. But she definitely notes that this all benefits white men. She says, dynamics like these shed light on the manipulative role of the most dominant group, white men, at the top of the racial sex-based hierarchy, enabling them to influence conflict among two subordinate groups, like basically pitting them against each other or pitting mm-hmm. white women against enslaved black women Where while experiencing that happen <laughs> yeah, exactly uh, <laughs> right out of the playbook of white men yes. fuckery. <laughs> what did we call it like rich asshole camp where yeah. all the white men go to yes. learn to be rich assholes yeah, yeah this is like page 37 yeah figure one um <laughs> so they experience minimal consequences themselves conflict reduces opportunities for determining shared interests among subordinate groups mm. such as potential similarities in some experiences of abuse that they might have in common or minimal access to legal protection. As a result, conflict between the two racial groups of women, which I I don't know if I would describe it that way. I would say like white women being shitty to enslave black women. I don't know that that's like co- conflict implies like I don't like you and you don't like me and me. But yeah. it's, it seems like more lopsided than that. Anyway, mm-hmm. as a result, conflict between the two racial groups of women perpetuates the interests of white men who are able to alleviate their own responsibility and avoid involvement in the conflict. There we go. There you we just go. Just reframe that in every other. Pretty much. <laughs> just pre-record that quote and hit play, like yeah. a sound effect for our radio disc jockey yeah. podcast. <laughs> well, and this, the last little bit here before I talk about the specific tactics in these petitions, um, really made me think of something Stephanie Jones Rogers emphasized in our conversation with her. It's how white women weaponize their whiteness as a way to deal with sexism. Like, it doesn't have to be that way, but that's a way that many of them have chosen to deal with it. So they say, um, the advantages of meeting white feminine standards come with the advantage of whiteness and the cost of reproducing white sexism. White femininity encouraged white women to reproduce their own subordination, as well as the oppression of enslaved black women, reinforcing the interlocking systems of racism and sexism and reflecting the mutually constructive nature of these institutions of oppression. Mm-hmm. So in the theory, I'm so excited to talk to David Stilwell about critical race theory because it's this really rich, dense, sophisticated legal theory. And part of it um, is connected with this idea of intersectionality. And there's a great podcast that Kimberly Crenshaw has called Intersectionality Matters, and it dives into all of the bits and pieces of intersectionality. So I strongly encourage people to check it out. But in this article, they, she um, Rachel Feinstein talks about three dimensions of this, intersectional incentives, intersectional tactics, and intersectional consequences, which I think is useful to think through all three of those because it's kind of like every moment of social interactions is shaped by these forces. So intersectional incentives 
Those are the motives, this is in her words, associated with the social norms and expectations, which are unique to one's intersectional location and include the advantages of adhering to one or more institutions of domination and oppression. So like for us being white women, that's our like intersectional location in a particular moment where race and gender come together in particular ways for us, right? Yep. For example, an intersectional incentive associated with white men during the antebellum period may be the motivation to lose one's virginity and uphold the sexual norms of white masculine prowess, while an incentive associated with white femininity includes upholding the image of oneself as a pure virgin. So there are these like norms and expectations that influence your choices and incentivize particular actions. That's why they're called intersectional incentives, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Intersectional tactics are the distinct strategies for carrying out or responding to oppression. And so Rachel Feinstein says intersectional tactics include those behaviors which assist an individual or group in performing intersectional racial and gender roles, such as the language white women used in divorce petitions to describe themselves as, quote, obedient or like really good wives who are loyal to their husbands in order to meet the standards of white womanhood. So the incentives are what like motivates or inspires particular choices. And then the tactics are like the actual choices you make, like the things you do. And then the last part of the intersectional consequences, like what happens as a result of those actions. So those are the varying degrees of harm and disadvantage to subordinate groups, which are unique to each group's intersectional location. One of the most important consequences is the reproduction of institutions of oppression, which is reflected um, in this article in which white women ultimately reinforce subordinating white gender roles in their attempt to appeal to the court system through the language of their, quote, obedient white femininity used in divorce petitions. So, I mean, the intersectional consequences can play out in all sorts of different ways, but if we're focused on white women, it's like they actually reinforced sexism even as they sought to like become empowered within that system because of the ways that they used whiteness. So it's like you're trapped when, unless you're disrupting it, you, you end up reproducing it. Even if you think that you're not like Mm -hmm. they, they were trying to say like, Oh, I'm this like pure, loyal, wonderful wife who was devoted to my husband and obedient to him. And he broke the bonds of marriage with this woman, I'll read some of the actual language. And so it's like, that was their reasoning. It reminded me so much of the suffrage arguments of like, we are white women who are like wonderful and loving and, you know, thoughtful. And why can't we vote when all of these like ragamuffin, Mm -hmm. you know, idiots get to vote? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Meaning like immigrant men, men of color, et cetera. Like what, how could that be? So like, they're trying to, they, they use this, they use the frame of sexism to try to advance their agenda and use the frame of racism. So it's like, Oh, white ladies are really good at this because they've Mm -hmm. done it all the time for everything always. So in the divorce petitions, Oh, the other word that kept coming up or like the other way that language comes up is just constantly not referring to black women as black women or, you know, that they used words like mulatto, which I didn't know came from the word mule. Oh, um, so that's great. Sense, I guess. Yeah. But... Wenches was used. Yeah. Um, 
So Rachel Feinstein explains that the the word choices they use to even describe the women creates a narrative focusing all attention on the needs of the white women and the role of the court in protecting them from the white men who have failed to achieve white male virtue through their immoral behavior. As a result, the narrative fails to acknowledge the needs of the black women who were the actual victims of sexual assault and required legal protection against rape. Yeah. 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 Um, So in these petitions, white women are portraying their white husbands as, quote, sinful, abusive, drunk, in order to defend their decision to divorce. And basically saying that their adultery is like a form of violence and cruelty against them as white women. Just like sit with that for a second. Like your rape of this woman is hurtful to me. Yeah. Because I'm your wife. (laughs) Like the fuck? Mm -hmm. Oh my God. Uh, okay so here is some like straight up from the actual petition language um the her has her said husband the said defendant not regarding the sanctity of the marriage relations but in violation of its most sacred duty towards her and in contraction of that most solemn pledge has committed the crime of adultery capital a with a certain negro girl named mary the slave of said defendant which in that case, like actually named the person. Um, but in this petition, it was a woman named Martha. I don't know why I don't have her last name, but she depicts herself as this like pure virtuous white lady. Like that's an example of, of doing that. She's exploiting her white femininity. This is Rachel Feinstein's language at the expense of reinforcing white sexism in order to achieve her divorce, reflecting the way institutions of white racism and sexism mutually assist one another. Um, there's another woman, Mary Jackson, and her husband was Joseph Jackson, which for a second I read as Joshua Jackson only because I like have had a major crush on Joshua Jackson since like approximately 1996. <laughs> Do you know who this is? No. Casey from Dawson's Creek. Oh, oh, oh. Okay. Also of Mighty Ducks originally, the original hockey feel good team movie from when we were like children, but really it was Dawson's Creek for sure. <laughs> And then I also am obsessed with the TV show Fringe. It's so good and underrated and he's in it and he just seems like an adorable husband and father and he's just oh a gosh. dreamboat. He was also <laughs> in that mo- the, um, show. I didn't really watch it, but it was like The Affair, I think it was called, where they mm. kept showing the this like relationship from the the an adult, an actually adulterous relationship but from the woman's point of view and then from the dude's point of view and he was mm. like the husband of the woman having the affair oh i never you saw have that. to know who this actor is oh i look it up i probably would what came to my mind immediately was that apparently crushes on josh's continued from our junior high school <laughs> yeah Jeez, i must have a thing we're not gonna name <laughs> the specific we won't one name any names. but i, I know, was like that's probably it <laughs> Hey, that it. reminds me of our notes oh my that God. we passed. Uh, so now I'm actually Josh. blushing. I actually have. <laughs> but like I married a Josh. So you maybe. did. <laughs> who I do not have a crush on but think is a goddamn delight. So <laughs> no worries. I, I am like madly in love with my husband. He's a wonderful person and continues to surprise me every day. And yeah, love him so Josh. much. Sorry. <laughs> no. <laughs> is actually yeah, a great. very cool name like he he is left-handed i've also always had like a very weird 
Like, why would that be something <laughs> I would be attracted one to? One of your attracted qualities, yes. left-handedness. Historical. Oh, for, like right now I'm also like having to fan myself a little bit. Yes. Yeah. Left mm. hand. Why? I don't know. Just, th- is it considered some sort of talent to write I with don't, your left hand? I have no, I, I, have no I mean, idea. they do I say a lot of it. things about like people who are left-handed, the way they use their brains differently than right-handed people. Well, it's and all honestly, connected, so maybe it's something with that. Haven't the U.S. presidents, not that that's the world's greatest list of people, but that I think it's disproportionately <laughs> left-handed people. List. Yeah. Like maybe I should not be attracted to this feature in some ways. <laughs> No, I, I don't know. I always thought it was cool. And even growing up, I tried to make myself ambidextrous because I am right-handed mm-hmm. and I would practice writing, like writing at the same time with both hands, like oh out from each other or like try to make myself left-handed, which I just could never do. No, but I've always no, thought it was really that. cool. I also, this is a weird one, like thought that it was hot in college to see guys walking in flip-flops when it was cold. Why oh, would that my gosh, be a thing? <laughs> that's got to be an Iowa thing because Iowa dudes, there's so many of them that just walk around in shorts and flip flops in the cold. It's also they just like a college cool. student thing. Like now yeah. that I have been a professor and work on college campuses, I'll look outside and I'm wearing like every hat, scarf, mitten, boots you could imagine. And then you will see college students wearing like shorts and a t shirt. So yeah. I don't know. They must just be able to miss. You have to have some weird fancy. I'm not the only one with the weird fancy. Oh, now we're talking about fetishes, are we? No, they're not. It's not a fetish. It's just like a thing where you're like, oh, hello. Oh, I like that. Nothing. I, uh, I'm going to have to think about it now. Think about it and okay, get back okay. to us. Yes. Okay. So That's back so to Mary Jackson and her husband, Joseph, not Joshua. Not um, so here, here's from the divorce petition. Mary Jackson lived with said Joseph Jackson as his lawful wife and performed all the duties incumbent on her by the matrimonial connection and treated her said husband, the said Joseph, which I'm now going to start referring to everybody like yes, with the said. the said with respect and affection and rendered due obedience to all the lawful commands and wishes of the said Joseph, but her said husband, the said Joseph, forgetful of his marriage vow to love and to cherish your petition, hath alienated his affection from your petitioner and attached himself to a Negro woman, the property of the said Joseph. And from the said first day of January aforesaid half until the present time, lived in the habitual indulgence of an illicit and carnal commerce with the said Negro woman and daily commission of adultery with the said Negro woman, which of course I read that and I'm like, he was fucking raping her every day. Uh And like the, we're concerned about the white lady. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know why that like never in my imagination would I have thought this is the way it would have been framed. Why did I not just realize that? But it's, I mean, don't you feel like that's kind of the whole, like one of the major takeaways of this whole experience is like learning these things and then thinking like, why did that not ever occur to me? It's because of how we were socialized to think about ourselves as white women and like that role in society and how we work. There's so much of this. I've been like, shocked by and dismayed and so grateful to learn. But then you think about it and you're like, of course, that's how it was. Why wouldn't I have ever thought to ask about that? Yeah. So annoying. It's like how when we grew up in a suburb of Des Moines, Iowa, that was very white. And it's like growing up there, it literally never occurred to me to think about why that was. And it wasn't until I was in my 20s when after my mom passed away and we were 
um, taking some clothes to this women's shelter that was like three miles from the house I grew up in. It was not far at all, but it was a part of town I'd never been to mm. near this other high school. And they, they were getting out. It was like three o'clock or whatever. And so the students were leaving and demographically like the inverse of the high school we had gone to. Mm -hmm. And I was so mortified and ashamed that all of the years I'd lived in this place, it had never dawned on me to even ask or think about the, the demographics and segregation. Like I would not have described our community as a segregated community. Of course it was, mm -hmm. of course mm -hmm. it was like, mm -hmm. so it's that same kind of feeling like, how did I not see this thing that was right in front of my face the, my whole life? Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, Rachel Feinstein goes on to say the court system and legal institution are deeply intertwined with institutions of racism, sexism, and classism, creating a seemingly inescapable paradoxical situation of oppression. Hmm. Yeah. That's crazy. Nice. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. So you, are you ready for this? This isn't really a twist, but it's another moment where you're like, oh, yeah, of course, that I had never thought about. Mm -hmm. White women also raped enslaved black men because, mm -hmm. of course, they did. Ugh. So let's yeah. talk about this. Okay. This comes from, um, from what I could tell, you know, Google stalking everybody that we read. Um, Jacqueline Elaine is a doctoral student in the Duke University Department of History and she is interested in um, Caribbean histories with an emphasis on women and gender, especially during slavery and right after emancipation. She is the founding member of Duke's working group in slavery, war, and gender, which I definitely want to dig into and learn more about. And she's based primarily in the Department of History, but she's also studying feminist studies and Latin American and Caribbean studies. So good job for you. Jacqueline, good luck <laughs> in your career. It's hard out there in the academy right now, but I yeah. have confidence she'll be fine. So this article is called Sexual Relations Between Elite White Women and Enslaved Men in the Antebellum South, a Socio-Historical mm. Analysis, mm. in the a journal called Inquiries in Social Sciences, Arts, and Humanities. So thoughts about this before I give you some deets? Oh, gosh. Details. <laughs> um, I mean, my initial thought is, of course, this is the reality of what happened. And then it was turned into the fear of white women mm -hmm. being the victims. Mm -hmm. like, And then how that all evolved into like the problem of lynching, because of course we have to put mm -hmm. our own dirty history and turn it around and make it somebody else's problem. I mean, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And this, I think that, well, like for a lot of white women, it wasn't like you didn't need physical strength to coerce people or enslave black men into having sex because really all you had to do was threaten yeah, yeah. to accuse them of rape. Right. Mm -hmm. So kind of either way, then that black man is like damned if he does, damned if he doesn't, mm -hmm. because then like she has that power over you no yeah. matter what. Yeah. And you're absolutely right that this is the direct lineage of the root. Every, I mean, truly, I can't think of a lynching that I have learned about that didn't start with a white woman accusing a black man of like whistling at her, mm -hmm. looking at her wrong, mm -hmm. stomping on her foot. That, mm -hmm. that was the, we just passed the hundredth uh, anniversary of the massacre in Tulsa, Tulsa and people probably saw it in the news. There was a lot 
out there about it. And it, it really began because this white woman, I think she was like an elevator operator that a black man apparently like stepped on her foot or something. And then the story like spiraled out of control and ended in this like horrific mass murder that the U S military was involved in that this destruction of black wall street in Tulsa. I mean, the pictures look like a war zone, like Mm -hmm. bombed out buildings. Um, mass graves of people, like just horrific, horrific violence. Yeah. And that was the cause. So, and yeah. when we talked about Atlanta in one of the mini sets, we talked about Omaha, we've mm-hmm. talked about these other places where like really massive, horrible violence has happened. And it is this like mention of something that maybe happened, maybe nothing happened, or maybe someone else was responsible. like, whatever, it doesn't matter. It's like the fog of, of this for sure. Mm-hmm. So, Here is from Jacqueline Elaine. She says uh, that, well, here, I'll start with this, that basically, I don't know. I, it feels weird because I don't, when you hear about sexual assault and rape, of course, men experience sexual assault and rape either from men or sometimes from women. And so I don't want to deny those experiences. And especially in this kind of context of enslavement, but I, I don't want to make it sound like so both men and women, like it's about like mm-hmm. it's even Steven, because of course, mm-hmm. like living no. in a patriarchal, misogynistic, sexist world is not the case. But of course, whoever the victim is, like sexual assault is a horrible, horrible thing. And in the context of enslavement, just like another awful dimension of this institution, because it was because rape and sexual assault aren't about sex, it's about control. So, of course, in a system like a white supremacist system of enslavement, that's going to be part of it. We shouldn't be surprised by that. Um, Also, at this time, we've mentioned this a little bit before, but like white women, especially like middle and upper class, rich women, white women, that their the ideas of femininity were really deeply attached to issues of purity and like chastity and monogamy and virginity that mm-hmm. the inverse was maybe true of men that their like masculinity was tied to being you know having <laughs> having experience and having multiple partners yeah. so yeah. that this that's kind of the vibe of what's happening in this period for especially wealthier white women and those would have been the people who enslave people like poor white women aren't enslaving people because they don't have the money to yeah. um so for women, adultery was considered a greater offense and like a greater shame and was punished more harshly for the women. I'm thinking of like the classic scarlet letter kind of phenomenon, mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. how very dare you. And yeah. which I honestly think is like still around yeah, this yeah. kind of general idea. Um, there are also like to contextualize this a little bit that birth control in the 19th century wasn't widely used or known about. And I know you're actually going to talk to us about birth control and the connection to eugenics and Margaret Sanger were coming for her. But I Mm -hmm. think that that's interesting to just consider too, like the levels of risk that existed for women, because obviously like if a white man is raping enslaved black women, she she might get pregnant. Mm -hmm. But if anything, it just like adds to your labor pool because for the most part, those babies were enslaved. 
And maybe some people like ended up emancipating their children, which is so fucked up. Mm. But the, not that, I mean, I'm glad if they got their freedom, but just the fact that that's even your legal relationship to your own children is so messed up. Yeah. Um, but for white women to, to coerce or to force black enslaved men to have sex with them, they could get pregnant. And then that creates a lot of like additional layers of complications for them. So apparently they had condoms. I kind of would cringe thinking about 19th century condom. Like what could that possibly like picture like the 19th century version of anything. You're like, ah, don't put that inside of me. Um, But they used animal skins, membranes, oiled silk, and even some rubber. Um, And then other contraceptive techniques, I'm guessing just like the rhythm method kinds of things. Um, But abortion was unregulated and didn't have like the same kind of level of intense policing that it does now. Um, However, I think that's like an important thing to think about. Like just the biological risk that women, the white women were taking is different than what the white men were taking. And the, what was... (laughs) I we'll we'll get into this, but if well, I'll just say it now. So the if they got pregnant and the father was an enslaved man, obviously that was like incredibly scandalous mm-hmm. and shaming, and that often the child would be sold into slavery. Um, and then in the article, the author Elaine Jacqueline Elaine says that infanticide was not uncommon mm-hmm. as a way to avoid that scandal, and I'm sure abortion as like a you know, and I'm sure that in those cases, those women would obviously claim that they were raped. They would never admit that they were perpetrators. Well, I think that. that's like, right. Like they've got, yeah. they've kind of got this out always that people are more than willing to believe and go along yeah. with. Um, so again, just like how terrifying for the black man, because yeah. of course it's very easy to accuse him of that. And that is always there. Yeah. Even accusing them of attempting rape or or actual rape, like it's just yeah. there. Um, Jacqueline Lane says, in doing this, elite white women used one of the primary instruments of patriarchal repression, the idea that they were weak and in need of white male protection, and by extension, in need of control and domination by white men to exercise racial control over slaves. Instead of attempting to dismantle the white patriarchal hegemony that oppressed both slaves and to a lesser extent white women, predatory white women who coerced slaves into sex through rape, through threat of rape or, you know, threat of accusing them of rape, opted to perpetuate both white supremacy and patriarchy by reinforcing paternalistic notions of female sexuality, which is exactly what was in this other article in the divorce petitions. Mm-hmm. Like these are smart white ladies using pretty sophisticated fuckery that taps into these systems of oppression to get what they want. Yeah. Um, so there's actually, according to Jacqueline Olane, considerable documentation of white women coercing black men into having sex. And this is just one example, but it's a, an abolitionist commander in the civil war was this guy, captain Richard Hinton. And he said, quote, I have never found a bright looking colored man whose confidences I have won, who has not told me of instances where he has been compelled either by his mistress or by white women of the same class to have connection with them. Wow. And then one former slave apparently told him that his mistress ordered him to sleep with her after her husband died. So it is this like 
I'm sure there were some cases that it maybe was even about like sexual gratification and satisfaction and like, especially in the context of white women's sexuality being so controlled and being so narrowly defined Mm -hmm. that here's this person you have ultimate control over that if you have like sexual fantasies or you have like something you want to try out or get out of your like you can this part this there's he can't say anything no one's going to say anything as long as you don't get pregnant and you figure that out like this is a way for you to be more sexually liberated so it actually reminded me too of stephanie jones rogers book saying Mm -hmm. for white women their economic independence and empowerment depended on slavery. To me, it also right. seems like this is part of being sexually liberated, dependent yeah. on the enslavement of black men. Yeah. The enslavement the fuck, and right? assault. And yeah. Mm-hmm. Also in this book, this is a super famous book and it actually, this is for sure a future rabbit hole that we're going to go down. Um, So in my notes, I said, put a pin in this shit pile with a doily on top Mm -hmm. um, that we're going to talk about um, Harriet Beecher Stowe, who is a way more complicated figure than I think a lot of white women remember her to be. But another, she wrote Uncle Tom's Cabin, which is this like super Mm -hmm. famous book that's Mm -hmm. often framed as like an abolition novel, but is more complicated. Mm -hmm. Around the same time, this woman, Harriet Jacobs, who went by Linda Brent, she was an enslaved black woman who became, who self-emancipated and got her family free and wrote this autobiography called incidents in the life of a slave girl published in 1867. And in it, she talks about um, her own struggles against sexual abuse and the sexual abuse that enslaved women faced nonstop. Mm -hmm. And then is basically trying to paint this portrait of black women as, as mothers who tried to protect their children, because we talked about this with regards to wet nursing that, that white, a lot of white people were constructing black women as like uncaring, didn't care about their children, like were, didn't have connections. And so this book by Harriet Jacobs is like, that is insane. And of course I'm a mother who loves my kids and like had to deal with all this shit all the time from white people. And then she also talks about in the book, how planters daughters would take advantage of enslaved men. Um, and so here, this part, <laughs> notes I wrote, daddy issues, question mm. mark. Um, they, meaning white women, know that the women slaves are subject to their father's authority in all things. And in some cases, they exercise the same authority over the men slaves. I have myself seen the master of such a household whose head was bowed down in shame. For it was known in the neighborhood that his daughter had selected one of the meanest slaves on his plantation to be the father of his first grandchild. Mm -hmm. She did not make her advances to her equals, nor even to her father's more intelligent servants. She selected the most brutalized over whom her authority could be exercised with less fear of exposure. Mm. Again, we said this like our first episode. Can we invent a time machine and take really good therapists back with us into time and just like set that girl up with a good counselor and like calm the fuck down Um, and, you know, dismantle entire systems of oppression. But just like some of these people, like if you just had better relationships with your fathers, it wouldn't be so bad. Okay. So 
Then in the article that Jacqueline Elaine writes, she says, even if this young white woman did not consider herself a sexual assaulter, which she probably did not, this is clearly sexually predatory behavior. The kind of relationship described here, which Jacob suggests was not uncommon, cannot be classified as consensual in any meaningful sense of the word, and in fact constitutes a form of sexual abuse, if not rape. We thus see that plantation mistresses and elite women, like their male counterparts, were able to sexually control and abuse their slaves. She says some of them maybe were simply bored or sexually frustrated, but perhaps at least on a subconscious level, sexually exploiting slaves was a means of compensating for their lack of power in other aspects of their lives. Yeah, because being bored is a really good reason to assault another person. <laughs> oh, oh, wow. Mm. I'm sure okay. there's so much more we could talk about and go into. And um, in the the American Historians Association panel, I heard Stephanie Jones Rogers talking about also doing some research into incest in these situations because, you know, you could have like a white man rape an enslaved black woman. She has a daughter. He could then rape like that. There was yeah. just all sorts of levels of of fucked upness and all of this but and yeah i mean in every episode i'm sure we could have like 18 spinoffs that go down either further rabbit holes but i don't know this one for me was probably like either thinking about white women as the as seeing themselves as the victims in all of this and using that to their advantage or they themselves being the perpetrators of sexual assault and rape I, they just, these were pieces of it that I had never, my brain had just never thought about before or yeah. known about before. What are you thinking about right now? Um, <clears throat> well, I was thinking of, and this doesn't have a lot necessarily maybe to do with white women, although I guess in a way it was spun off by a white woman. I don't, I think we have to bring up maybe one of the more famously well-known now stories of, um, a woman enslaved woman being assaulted by mm -hmm. her owner and bring in the Thomas Jefferson. Oh, sure. And, and Sally, Sally Hemings. Hemings. Yeah. Yeah. Um, part of things, which, so the interesting part and in where the white woman's involved in that story for anyone who doesn't know, it's now widely accepted that Thomas Jefferson had a longstanding assault relationship. You have mm -hmm. to call it, people call it a relationship, but I'm like, you have to stop using that language. It's not when it's a slave that's owned by someone. Maybe, as you said, there were some nuances to it, but that power dynamic just cannot be it's the same as taken out like, of it. Oh, this 15 year old girl and her math teacher had an, a relationship. Well, yeah, they and had an illicit thing. affair. And you're like, did they? Is so Sally Hemings was? was a slave of Thomas Jefferson. Um, Thomas Jefferson's wife died when she was 33 years old, which I didn't know, leaving mm -hmm. him a widow. And she made him promise that he would never get remarried. And mm -hmm. so his answer, instead of remarrying, was just to basically assault Sally Hemings um, for oh, the rest yes. of her Sally life. Sally Hemings is the biological daughter of Martha Jefferson. I think it's Martha, right? Isn't that his wife's name? Um. Hemings was the half sister of his wife. Right. Her, yeah, yeah. her biological, they shared the same father. Yeah. So that right. also is like, <laughs> so right. Crazy. But when, 
when he started assaulting her, he was in his mid forties and she was 16 years old. So not only was, I did not realize that the age difference was so big. Wow. Not only was she owned by him and enslaved Mm -hmm. by him, but she was a child and he was a grown man. So there's no relationship there. Like that's, that the framing of it that way is just gross, but it also came at really almost the behest of his wife who wouldn't, didn't want him to get remarried. So then I mean, he I'm, thinks I'm that guessing this is if okay. he was like, well, so how about this? She would have been like, yeah, hard pass on that too. <laughs> right. But or I maybe think this not. is like a loophole. Maybe, maybe not. not. As we've learned. Anyway, so they had this relationship <sighs> over, you know, decades and she had six of his children. It's now accepted that. They were fathered by Thomas Jefferson, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, which for years people denied and denied and denied. And it's like, hello, people, DNA. Didn't see that one coming, <laughs> did, did you? Like, <laughs> here we go. I mean, yeah, so it's not, yeah. This is a man who, again, was a president. Don't know if he was left-handed. Can't say. Haven't looked that up. <laughs> it's probably not, documented. It's, it would not but- <laughs> endear me to him. Don't worry. It's not like that trumps other things. I'm just like, if that's the only thing I know, I'm like, I'm listening. Okay. But other things can cancel that out. Don't worry. Uh, well, yeah. you know, it's funny that you mentioned the Jefferson and Hemings um, history because Monticello, have you ever visited or like been to a plantation? No, but, but, um, I, I think I told you I was reading the book, um, how the word is passed, the new oh, yeah. book that yeah. came out and it has like a whole chapter where it talks about like a couple of different plantations, um, in the Monticello foundation. Yeah. So go ahead. It's, yeah. I mean, that's kind of what I want before I pass the baton over to you. Maybe our last work. I know we're going to um, have this conversation with Stephanie Jones Rogers. And then I think maybe just one more episode to talk about plantation tours and weddings and how this history is kept alive in really false or disturbing ways. And the few um, places that are really trying to push against that. And then the other piece of it is like, the daughters of the Confederacy and these, the ways that white women today are still very invested in a particular narrative of this time period, just like we did with the women's suffrage movement. And we had an episode where we talked about like the myth of Seneca Falls and like how this story gets built and spread and passed down. And you remember we talked about that massive sculpture in the Capitol. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like it's the equivalent of that. Like how, are these women like the, the Scarlett O'Hara kind of narrative that gets passed down? Um, the de- we've talked a little bit about this, like the balls that they have, the, um, like debutante. <laughs> I seven. thought you meant like the balls. Those <laughs> like, like, <laughs> like, like scrotum. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like the- <laughs> <laughs> that too. No, no, no. Like set dances. of balls. They have. <laughs> oh god, that's amazing. No, 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 no. So I, I want one last little bit to talk about, like how this gets reconstructed and retold in ways that just either render all of these histories invisible or gaslight people about them, like pervert them and warp them into a way that makes it seem like white women were the victims somehow in all of this, and like you know, just virtuous people who were sucked into this system against their will, but like would have been different, um, that where all of that comes from. And then I will pass the baton to you. So next week, I cannot wait for 
our interview with Stephanie Jones Rogers and then talk some shit about balls, all kinds of balls, <laughs> any kind of balls we'll talk about. We'll talk about. <laughs> and then I'll pass it on to you. Okay. I'm excited. Have a okay. great weekend, everybody. All right. See Thanks ya. for listening. Bye.